Welcome to the remote service for Stanton Evangelical Free Church. We trust that the Lord will bless you today as we look into his word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look into what God's word says about judging the nations and how it may apply for our coming election. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not live in a void where we can't know what your opinion of things is. We thank you that you've given us through your word instruction and that as we pay attention to what you are doing in our world, we can understand what your will for us is. We thank you for your word today and we would pray that you would help us as we apply it to our lives. In thy name we ask it, amen. God pays attention to what goes on in our nation. We are a nation that has gotten incredible favor from God over, over our history. And God is paying attention during this season of our history and watching our elections. I know this because the Bible tells us clearly that God watches the nations. Psalm 66 verses 5 through 7 say, Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Now God is the sovereign ruler over the universe and the earth and mankind because he created all of it. He did not create it just as an exercise in creativity and then take off and forget about it. He continues to watch and see if the human beings he created will respond to him to reach out for him in love and honor or whether they will rebel against his rule. Will they try to explain him away and not let him have his rightful role as Lord over humanity? The nations have an influence in relation to the attitudes of the people who inhabit them. If a nation fosters righteousness and rewards virtue and punishes evil, then the people will respond by doing more right and doing less evil, and that gives a greater opportunity for people to acknowledge and respond to God and his love. The Bible tells us we should pray for our leaders for this to happen. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If the governing powers that run a nation enable godly people to live peaceably in quietness and dignity, God knows his message of love for mankind will get out. If, on the other hand, a nation starts to monitor and pressure those who are godly so that they cannot practice their godliness without harassment, then it will not be good for the gospel, and it will not be good for that nation. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. If within a nation Christians are allowed to educate their children in the ways of the Lord without the government interfering with that education, well, good for that nation. If, on the other hand, the nation that once allowed public prayer in schools no longer allows it. If they used to post the Ten Commandments in school buildings and courthouses, and then they decide that, well, that's too much mixing religion into public life. And now Christians have to do things like 
pull their children out of public schools in order to assure that they'll be taught Christian things without being ridiculed for their beliefs, then that nation is going to have to take up such activity with the God of the universe, and he will not be happy about it. Another example is if a nation uses its taxing structure to audit and harass faith-based organizations that are seeking to help people know truth, God will not be happy about such a policy. That also happened in our nation a few years ago. Now we must understand that God has said he will remake nations that do not serve the purposes for which he made them and that rebel against them. This is especially true of nations that have been blessed by him with the knowledge of the truth of who he is and what he's done for them. He explains these things in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. We have a picture, first of all, of God working with the nations in verses 1 through 4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. The picture that Jeremiah is given is of a potter at the potter's wheel working a piece of clay. And as he works it, it doesn't turn out the way he wanted. So he smashes the clay down while it's still wet clay and remakes the vessel he was making so that it comes out according to his liking. Now, we're not told exactly what spoiled the clay. It could have been that there were some pieces of rock in the clay that came to the surface as it was being worked and spoiled the smoothness of the surface, and they needed to be removed, and then the surface reworked. It could be that the rim got too thin and fell over in a way that the potter didn't want it, so he reworked it. Whatever the problem, the potter considered the pot spoiled, and he had to rework the lump of clay. Well, why would God rework a nation? Now God explains to Jeremiah why he has given this imagery. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, says the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you, Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your doings. We need to notice several things about this instruction. God is saying that at any time, he has the right to make a declaration about a nation that is going to be brought down and destroyed or that it's going to be built up and flourish. This is his right at any time. He has his purposes for raising nations up and for bringing them down. But he holds those purposes in check, looking for a response from the nation he's dealing with. If his intent is to tear down and they repent of evil, God will decide not to tear it down. This is what happened to Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah. If his intent is to build up and bless, and they do evil and do not acknowledge God, he has the perfect right to decide not to build and bless. 
Now, this message to Jeremiah was at a particular point of time in the history of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. God was calling them to repentance, but they did not repent. But the principle is the same for all nations at all times, because God stated this as a principle rather than just as a directive for Israel. Because in verses 7 and 9, he says, if a nation. This means what he is saying can apply to any nation at any time. Well, what, God, uh, what does God look to nations to supply in righteousness? Um, we have an idea from uh, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Here's a few principles. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. First, we can recognize that things that are obviously evil ought to be judged as evil in the court system of a country. Things like murder, robbery, rape, fraud, violence against people and property. Virtually any civilized society has these things in a code of conduct that declares them illegal. When a country gets so bad in terms of law enforcement that local militias handle justice, then it's already lost in regard to having national integrity. That's the kind of thing that often happens in countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan's mountain regions and Iraq. It is also, it is also lost and declared evil in God's sight if the government arbitrarily commits murder and genocide against its own people who may be dissident. That was the case of Iraq under Saddam. That's the case of Syria under Hussein. That was the case of the Islamic Caliphate that ISIS was seeking to establish. And that's the case of communist China as they subjugate any people group or ideas that are contrary to official state policy. All of those kinds of things are covered under the general principle, seek justice. But notice that in God's eyes, it is government's job to take care of some other issues that can happen in a culture. It says, correct oppression. Now, oppression can take many forms. In the biblical times, it was considered oppression to loan money with interest and then put the debtor into slavery when they were unable to pay the debt. In Israel, God would allow a lender to charge 1% interest to a foreigner, but not any interest to a citizen. And if the cloak he used to collect his collateral, he had to return that cloak at night so that the debtor could use it. So slavery was a form of oppression. Debt was a form of oppression. Taking a person's property in foreclosure uh, was a form of oppression. Some issues need powers bigger than local authority to correct. Let me give you a few examples of oppression that happened today. Girls are taken from Russia or Ukraine or Central America and Thailand and other Southeast Asia areas are brought to the U.S. They have a promise uh, of being trained and jobs, but then they're sold into prostitution when they get here. It's human trafficking, and it's happening in our nation. Hiring children and working them in sweatshops with little hope of ever getting out of such a circumstance is oppression. Many who come from the Far East to escape the oppression of communism get taken advantage of in the U.S. in this way. It's also human trafficking. Some U.S. companies oppress foreign children when they outsource manufacturing. They may not be aware of it, but they need to monitor the working conditions of factories that they own in third world countries so that they're not a party to oppressing the poor. 
Much of the anger that's in our electorate today is because people are feeling oppression within the culture from things such as health care issues and insurance companies and credit card companies and the government itself. You're being oppressed when you do all the right things and can never improve your own situation because some other institution has made itself rich on the backs of the poor. Many feel oppression is race-based and is systemic. But much of that sense of oppression is actually sin-based within a culture that says men don't have to support the children they spawn or the women who become the mothers of those children. Yes, these things have happened in the United States of America, and they continue to happen today. And yes, scripturally speaking, it is the government's job to come up with some answers for broken systems that have operated on greed and oppressed the poor. The last thing is that governments are supposed to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves through no fault of their own. The scriptures mention orphans and widows. It says, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Good governments in God's eyes are those in which people who don't have someone related to them to take care of them can still get by without having to beg in the streets. Now, if a nation is not doing these things, God sees it as doing evil rather than doing good. If you add on top of that that the nation is not a nation that worships him, then they are really at risk of God needing to break down the clay vessel and remake it. They could easily come under God's judgment of destruction. The Bible shows that if a nation honors the Lord, then it will have the common decency to administer justice, to correct oppression, and to take care of the helpless. The starting place of those evils in a nation is rejection of God as Lord. Just this week, we saw reports of church buildings being attacked and desecrated. The removal of the free and unencumbered worship of God in the public life has been on Satan's agenda for the United States since its inception. And many leaders in the U.S. apparently see the coronavirus as an opportunity to shut down the worship of God. Again, we have numerous places in Scripture to look to understand God's dealing with nations and cultures. By the way, in some ways, the two terms are interchangeable. Scripturally speaking, because a nation in Scripture was generally a related people group, a nation such as the USA, where there is a melting pot of people groups, uh, isn't the way nations of old were composed. And even today in the rest of the world, nations are largely composed of a dominant people group and inhabited by others who are considered lesser citizens if they have citizenship rights at all. We are really a very unique country even yet. But I want to look at two places that show God's dealing with man in rebellion. We get a view from heaven uh, in Psalm 2, what God sees as he looks down at rebellious men and rebellious nations. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this slavery. These verses tell us how God views earthly leaders who think they can dismiss God and just take care of business themselves. He sees them as plotting to displace God as the sovereign of the earth. He sees them as judging the Bible as some kind of bondage that they don't need. Then it goes on with how God views this. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. These verses show that God sees the eventual rule of Jesus from Jerusalem as an already accomplished fact. It's, accompanied in the will of, it's accomplished in the will of heaven by the declaration of God the Father, and it will come to pass at its appointed time in history. All those nations that rejected God and his son Jesus will be smashed like clay pots being hit by an iron rod because God is eternal. He often declares in Scripture something that has not yet happened historically as an already accomplished fact. It's like that when he declares us righteous in his sight. It has not happened in our lives historically yet, but it is what his will is to work into us, and so he declares us righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Psalm 2 goes on. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits for his anger can flare up in an instant, but what joy for all who find protection in him. These last verses give earthly leaders of nations advice. You better pay attention to serving the Lord submissively because he may destroy your nation if you do not. Now that's a thumbnail sketch of what God in heaven sees with all of our politics and our government manipulations on earth. We are puny and paltry and we think we are so great, we had better recognize him and his sovereign rule if we want to survive. We also have a view of uh, man's rebellion from Romans 1, 18 through 32. We have a progression of what man's rebellion looks like, and I want to point out that this progression can be seen in the recent history of the United States of America. Let me take a quick look at it, and as we look at it, uh, what God does when he decides he needs to judge a nation. Beginning at uh, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. These verses tell us that God has made plain in nature itself the truth of his existence. And it's easy to see by carefully observing created nature. The things we ought to be able to figure out from nature about God are that he's invisible, that he is eternal, that his power is without limit, that he is God. That is, he is above everything that has been created as its creator. The greatest assault on these truths that have ever been launched by man have been launched within the last 150 years. Starting with Charles Darwin, man has sought to displace God as the creator of humanity. By buying into evolution, man has sought a way to not have to answer to God for his own existence. But it doesn't add up. 
Recently, the realities of understanding the complexities of the design of the universe and of life itself have shown that there had to be an intelligence behind all this stuff we call the universe. It could not possibly have just happened. That's what the Bible tells us is the starting place of man's rebellion against God. They want to explain creation in another way, either with science or with another deity in God's place, rebellion starts with refusing to believe what is plainly observable in every sunset and flower, in every baby that is born, in looking into the multitude of the stars in the night sky. God is there. He created it all. He cares about you, and you are accountable to him. Throw that out as the foundation of your culture, and you begin down the road of apostasy and self-destruction. It goes on in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men or birds or animals or reptiles. If you get rid of God, you need something to replace him for explaining life and, exp and for giving expressions of gratitude to so you invent another higher power, such as science, that you make your God, or Mother Nature, that you make your God to give thanks to, or simply mankind himself. You know, what great geniuses we all are, even though we're only morally equivalent to trees and apes in that view, and we climb them, well, we're the smartest. Thank us for us. And so we worship our families, our ancestors, our science books, our scientists become the rock stars in our mind. So what happens next? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The next thing that happens when a culture gets to honoring science more than God is that they decide the most meaningful thing they can do with their lives is have sex. And of course, since there is no God to hold you accountable, you can have as much as you want with as many partners as you want. And you discover it never fulfills you. Or you may get passion about some other bodily passion. And your life gets out of balance with whatever you give your passions to. The culture gets filled with people ruled by their passions, and they live by the motto, if it feels good, do it. Does any of this sound familiar? Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. These verses tell us that the culture that gets passion saturated will soon get into homosexuality. Natural passions did not quench the burning of passion no matter how many partners and no matter how many different ways they tried it, and so they start to look to a partner that has the same equipment they have. And God says, let them go and let them see what happens. And they're going to discover some diseases that they never knew existed before. And as the homosexual agenda grew more and more open in our culture, AIDS emerged from the heart of Africa. Going on in verse 28. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. These last verses describe a society that has thrown off all moral restraint. It's exactly the description of the Roman Empire before its final demise. And it very closely resembles a large segment of the United States today. I think there is still a divide in the U.S. because there is still a remnant of people who adhere to biblical morals. But whether they will gain enough influence in public life to actually turn our nation to repentance is very much up in the air. Does our nation have enough resolve to put to death murderers who actually deserve to die according to scripture and the heinousness of their crimes? Sometimes we're not so sure. Does our nation have enough resolve to even arrest those who are insolent haters who invent evil and are ruthless purveyors of violence and destruction. Many cities have not shown the resolve to do that of late. God has a pattern of judgment that is laid out before Israel. God is not unjust to judge immediately without giving warning that judgment is coming, and you still have time to repent. The pattern of blessing and judging is laid out in Deuteronomy 28. Now, let me say, first of all, the blessings and curses of this passage are directed toward Israel in relation to the time from Moses until the dispersion in particular. But the principles of what is stated are things that we can see as ways God judges nations. We're going to just begin looking at the curses or judgments. So we begin at verse 15. I'll read a portion and explain the principle. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and the statutes which I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading trough. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. This part describes a general economic collapse. This passage contrasts with the blessings God promised for obedience earlier in the chapter. Instead of an economy with growth, it will be an economy with depression and deprivation. It is a general collapse because both the city and the country are mentioned. Sometimes, you know, with normal economy, agribusiness will do well and the city dwellers will complain that food costs are too high. And at other times, city dwellers will enjoy cheap prices and farmers will complain they can't get enough for the bumper crops that they're making. This time will be a time when both sides are finding hardship. That's why it's a general economic collapse. And if you thought our economy is too strong to collapse, you know you weren't paying attention during the month of March. It goes on. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and frustration. 
in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your doings because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cleave to you until he has consumed you off the land which you're entering to take possession of it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blasting and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be brass and the earth shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down upon you until you are destroyed. This is saying the problems that come will be so complex that you won't be able to figure out the answers. There will be a health care crisis with all kinds of diseases hitting you that you don't know how to treat and consume everything you have. Does that sound like anything going on today? There will be weather patterns that favor the propagation of pest insects and crop disease. There will be droughts like you haven't seen. There may be rain like you haven't seen. Verse 24 could be taken one of two ways. One is that the rain will be turned into powder and dust and your farms will be destroyed by turning into desert. The other is that the rain will come down so much so that it's like the powder and dust on the ground and that will destroy you. You'll flood. At any rate, God will make the weather not work for you. He goes on, the word will, Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with the ulcers and the scurvy and the itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. When God judges a nation, you will not be able to get a hold of your enemies to defeat them. You may fight them, but you are constantly looking every which way to see where the next attack may come from. You will not prosper. Instead, you will be oppressed. Every which way you turn, there will be somebody else who wants a piece of what you have and what you produce, but not to your profit. You will be in debt. In response to the coronavirus shutdown, the government spent trillions of dollars it did not have to keep people from filing bankruptcy and not having food to eat. How that will get paid for is anybody's guess, and it does not even seem to be a topic for debate. We are already a debtor nation to China, as it has bought up American companies and stolen American technology. $6.81 trillion of U.S. debt is held by foreign nations. As of today, China holds $1.09 trillion and Japan holds $1.27 trillion that we owe them. It goes on. You shall betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, and you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, and you shall not use the fruit of it. Your ox shall be slain before your eyes, and you shall not eat of it. Your ass shall be violently taken away before your face, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemy and there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all the day. And it shall not be in the power of your hand to prevent it. 
a nation which you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you shall be driven mad by the sight which your eyes shall see. The Lord will smite you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. This speaks of the fact that marriage and family will break down. Lawlessness will become prevalent. There will not be justice in going to court to try to recover a loss from a theft. Verse 33 points to the reality that you will work and work and other nations will profit from your work. It has been widely, widely reported that we're giving $700 billion annually to nations that don't like us very much in oil alone. Other nations, such as China, own major portions of our wealth by their investments in our companies. Some of these curses that are mentioned are specifically referencing things that the Israelites feared because of their previous Egyptian captivity. The curses go on in graphic detail about being dispossessed of the land, and those curses were fulfilled for Israel by the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity. I think there's enough evidence in these patterns to see some parallels for the USA right now. If you've been watching the news at all and listening to any of the politicians at all, we all recognize the problems. We are seeing financial systems collapsing, a war where we struggle to identify the enemy. And we know this enemy cheaply regards life. Uh, we have a broken health care system, new virulent diseases that are resistant to the drugs that we have. We have become a debtor nation to nations that would like to see us destroyed. It's harder and harder for farmers to make a living, and it doesn't seem much better for laborers who aren't in the agribusiness industry. I want to point out another passage that I think relates to our times and to this election in particular. Isaiah chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. All of these kinds of people that have just been mentioned are the ones that had been seen as qualified leaders. They're qualified by a life of valor or virtue or vision or by experience, or expertise. And it goes on to say, And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed each by one another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader in these Ruins will be under your charge. He'll protest, saying in that day, I will not be your healer. For in my house there's neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. These verses say that the qualified leaders will be replaced by unqualified leaders. They're unqualified by lack of experience and by selfish viewpoints. Lots of people who get put into leadership won't really want to be there in terms of having any answers for the people. It goes on, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. 
to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. Here is the sin that God is judging. They've rejected God and do not desire his presence with them. In addition, they're actually proud of their sinful condition. They celebrate their sinfulness. I sometimes wonder what God thinks of our celebrations of debauchery. From gay pride parades to Mardi Gras, we are a nation that too easily celebrates immorality. goes on. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. But woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them, for what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. I want to especially point out that last verse. Their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Let me say, first of all, that there are many capable women leaders. Usually they're in leadership because men failed to step up. But it is a sign to a nation or an institution that they are under judgment when the experienced men are not in leadership and they're replaced by inexperienced men and women. This does not mean that there's no hope. It means there must be repentance. One great king of Israel began at eight years of age and started by cleansing the temple and restoring right worship. He did this because he had the wisdom to listen to an experienced priest and return to following the instructions of the Bible. Well, how does this apply in our national election? First of all, I want us to know there is hope. And leaders are a sign of God's judgment. Who are your leaders? They're a sign of God's judgment. For the last several elections, we have had candidates that show us that we are a nation under judgment. We had Barack Obama versus John McCain. One was an inexperienced, charismatic community organizer. The other was a longtime leader, a war hero, and he chose a woman as a running mate. Then there was Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney. Neither had military service. The last uh, election was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, a woman career politician versus a feisty businessman with no political experience. Again, neither had military service or experience. Well, why is that an important question? Again, it is a sign from the Lord that our nation is under judgment. The last time we had a leader who had military experience was George Bush I. This time we have Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, who again promises to select a running mate who is a woman. In our nation, we get to vote, and I encourage you to vote as a citizen. But remember this, whoever wins, God will still be in charge, and our nation will still be under judgment. God has removed from the running those he said he would remove as a sign to us of his judgment. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet. Our current cultural atmosphere is terrifying 
when you look at Scripture. O my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. We have resistance movements to law and order that are oppressive, trained in Marxism and ready to do violence to any who speak against their tactics. They're willing to tear down all monuments to the good things of our past and the foundations of our nation as a nation under God. It seems that many are young radicals and angry women, and they do not care about the lives being lost on the streets of the cities. They simply want power. And it seems that much of our leadership in cities and states are willing to give them that power that they demand without any of those radicals having been voted into an office. It is a chaotic sign to us as a nation of being under God's judgment. And it calls for repentance on the part of the nation and a return to God. God said in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a pestilence, that's a disease, among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If any are to repent, it must be Christians who understand this to be, again, a repentance movement. This week I saw that the National Day of Prayer organization is uh, starting 52 days of prayer for our nation, uh, prayers of repentance. You might go on their website and check out um, how to pray for our nation in these days. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word makes clear to us that we are a nation that's under judgment. We have forsaken you wholesale. Lord, forgive us as the church for not having been vocal enough, for not having been strong enough to keep uh, our, our nation on a straight path. Help us as we seek to return to you. Help us as believers who would uh, seek to have a restoration of righteousness in our nation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.